My name is Jean-Pierre Desperrois, and starting now, I am posting my story under One of Us Podcast Network. I was born in Haiti. Now I live in Tunis. My story, it is called Salt, and Destiny, she calls my name. Salt podcasts every other week on the oneofus.net podcast network. Subscribe today. So, monkey, we have the entirety of the one of us towers to ourselves. Oh, I've dreamt of this moment. Just me and the oceans of power and just this kimono. Oh, all to myself. I'd watch films with me. Would you watch films with me? Oh, yes. Yes, I definitely, definitely would. Hi, hello. Ah, ah, ah. Um, Richard? Hi, Chris. What, what, what are you doing? Just hanging out. Ooh, uh, sorry, actually hanging out, you, seemingly. What are you, how are you wearing my girlfriend's, how are you fitting in my girlfriend's kimono? I, uh, snuggly? How, how was San Diego? I thought you weren't back for a week. Well, I had to come back to record Digital Noise. Uh, that's lovely of you. Just, uh, 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 but, well, I, do, I don't even know what to say. Why are you wearing makeup? Beer? Yeah, sure. I'm going to need it after this. Aye, aye. Digital noise. Doop it, doop it, doop it, doop. Boop, boop. I'm Chris. I'm not. I'm Richard. And together, we give you all the movies in the world. Someone was laughing the other day at me saying, uh, quoting the, the, uh, cause I was going through this marathon trying to watch all these movies before I left for San Diego, just nonstop for a week and a half of watching stuff and TV shows. And I was like getting, you know, 100 yard stare, wobbly on my feet. <laughs> and like quoting The Simpsons, you like movies, do you? Well, I'll have all the movies in the world. <laughs> I don't understand. Roger Ebert went crazy after two weeks. <laughs> Which isn't to say that Roger Ebert is in hell, so nobody go there. No. <laughs> hell is such a comparative state of affairs. Yes, exactly. It's Transformers 4, never ending. Yeah, right? Uh. And let's, you know what? I, if there is a God, I pray to him. If you've trapped Roger Ebert there, please let him go. There is nothing <laughs> he or anyone did that would be so bad as to trap in future, in, in a endless limbo of Transformers 4. Transformers 4 has now become, uh, at this point for us, I feel like, a friend of mine, when I was in college, um, she got very high and watched Space Camp and accidentally rewound the tape and watched it again. So it became her definition of hell and also her, her, her reference point for terrible cinema. So whenever anything was really bad happened in her life, she'd just scream, Space Camp, and run away. Well, that's what I thought everybody did that. Yeah, well, that is true. Isn't that normal? Space Camp! Space Camp! Anyway. Uh, anyway. Uh, so it is, uh, I am at, actually at comic-con while this is airing i'm still not you're you still better not. bring me back some exclusive shit i'm kicking your ass when you get home uh yeah yeah you should have a postcard Ugh. for comic-con i hate you <laughs> take monkey take it oh <laughs> <Aww. laughs> 
<laughs> Monkey the Cat is currently giving us this. Eh, look. I don't give a shit. Um, well, this will be airing on the, I believe, the Thursday when Comic-Con just is getting actually started. I actually had to leave early to go to some other stuff out in California. Oh, you, oh the hardship. Oh, I had to go to Cali. Ugh. I'm going out to Cali. Going Cali. out to Cali. But you guys should know that we're still having the Comic-Con meetup July 26th. This is the Saturday coming up. From 6 to 8 p.m. and a pup crawl afterwards with the 6 to 8 p.m. part, we'll be in the VIP room of the Hard Rock Cafe at 801 4th Avenue, San Diego in the Gaslamp District. There is no cover charge. You guys just, I mean, it's you can be underage and be in there. It's no problem. Just come on in. We will be partying, having a great time. Brian, I, other special guests, it's going to be fun. Do not miss it. Do you need more special guests than you two? Because you two are pretty damn special. <laughs> We're not that special. Oh, you're fairly adorable. We're kind of short bus special. Tell you what. We'll put this out now. Whoever can bring the most special, special guest to to the, uh, the the meetup, like truly, like if you can like shoulder tackle Steven Spielberg and get him through the door, huh. um, I'm pledging their money now. Brian and Chris will buy you a drink. It's true, a drink. We will because like, and and, and that is as good an offer as you're going to get at, at this <laughs> Probably. point. Probably, it's all we can afford. Maybe some wings, but it is going to be fun. There will be food. There will be drink. It will be fun. So please come on out. Also, uh, thanks once again to all our subscribers. We really appreciate everything you do. You can look on the side of the oneofus.net any given page where it says subscribe, and you can get all sorts of benefits from our four different tiers of being a subscriber. As soon as we get back from Comic Con at end of August, we are going to be loading up those subscriber. Forms. End of uh, August? I'm sorry, end of July. How long is your hangover going to be? Uh, I, I, yeah, right. Are you walking back? My body could not handle two months in California, okay? <laughs> it's not going to happen. Are you, you going to come back as the littlest hobo? Are you going to come back along the rails with a bindle over your shoulder? Right, little Charlie Chaplin. <laughs> um, you guys, I can't tell you how much it helps. Lots of new uh, subscriber-only content, including new subscriber-only commentaries. Hope to do another one of those with you and your lovely wife. Oh, we ha- we have a couple of suggestions. Uh, all all I'll say do. is that uh, Melissa has this idea. Ladies, if you are fans of, of certain uh, classic 80s vampire movies that may contain rice, maggots, and sax solos... We could have something great coming for you in the very near future, and if you don't get those references, then you're probably not. Wait, that could be like ten different movies, Richard. Sax solo. The sax uh, solo. Oh, that's right. the, that's the big right. thing. That's the big thing. You're so right. there you go. Um, the Hunger, right? Yes. Let's say that. <laughs> hey, she'd do that as well. I mean, I think there's a sax solo on the soundtrack somewhere. <laughs> that's a weird soundtrack. Do you know, one of the, one of the first true viral websites was uh, uh, David Bowie's uh, Bulge. Was that? Was it, it was just somebody chronicling all the ridiculous appearances of David Bowie's package uh, in in photographs across the years, and of course the highlight was Labyrinth, where like of course, it, yeah. you know, it was simply stuff but reinforced. His, his bulge was in fact manipulated by the Jim Henson workshop. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> anyway, uh, tell them about the DVDs and buying stuff through Amazon. Indeed, if you go on the actual page for Digital Noise, you'll see a bunch of images of all the movies we'll be talking about today. And if you click on any one of those images, it will take you to the associated Amazon.com page, where if you buy that movie through there we get a kickback from amazon.com because i don't know why but i'm not arguing because finance don't look a gift horse in the mouth but if you also click on that page you get to there and go you know what i don't think i'm actually going to buy this right now you can go as long as you're starting from there and continuing on amazon from that point anything else you buy from amazon no matter what it is it could be a giant purple dildo we still get a kickback from there from amazon whatever that product is you buy do they even sell giant purple dildos on amazon i don't know they should 
Let's not Google it now. I mean, it's probably one that goes specific for that uh, uh, that that video game series. That's a ripoff of uh, that other video game series. What the hell's the name of it? Resident Evil. No, 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 no. The one about the dead. a bunch of gangsters in the city tearing it apart. Oh, uh, Saints Row. Yes, Saints Row. Yeah, Thank there you. we go. Because in the the later games, one of the weapons is a giant purple dildo. Of course it is. Because, of course it is. Need <laughs> I say more than that? Well, you know what? It's time to sneak out to the mailbox in your boxers and hope that all your neighbors have gone to work. Grab uh, grab the end of the letterbox and open it up. Let's see what's in the... The Letterbox. You've got mail. Yeah. And let me root around in here and see what we got in the back. Let's see. It's a publisher's clearinghouse. No... Rolling Stone magazine, no. Bills overdue. Oh, Bed, Bath, and Beyond? Never mind that. Oh, <laughs> uh, here we go. We got a letter from Joshua McDowell who says, What movie do you rewatch the most? Or more, maybe more appropriately, what movie always forces you to sit down with it again when you find it on TV? Movie I rewatch the most. Um, shut up, Hugh. Because I know what you're going to say. I, My I'm annual rewatching of all six Star Wars films. Quiet you. Wait, I don't hush, understand. Hush. There's only three Star Wars quiet films. Quiet you, heathen. They only um, ever made three Star Wars films. Quiet you, heathen. Um, as for the films that when they're on, um, I, I will uh, consistently uh, rewatch just because it's on. Uh, I have this really bad syndrome. There's a, there's a film I kind of like that's on, and... I'll go, well, I might watch it, and then I'll kind of forget that it's on and won't watch it. But if I'm kind of channel hopping and I come in ten minutes into a film that I even mildly like, I will just sit there. Um, so, Which explains why I've watched the last hour and 50 minutes uh, of 30 Days of Night, like 50 times <laughs> now. Because every time it's on the Sci-Fi channel, I'm like, oh, it's, it's that. Oh, there's going to be that really good sequence in a moment. Oh, there's the creepy child. Oh, there they turn the generator on in the woodmill. Oh, this is great. And I swear, I, I, I've accidentally watched that film so many times. Yeah. Um, just because, you know, it's on Sci-Fi's regular rotation around 9 o'clock in the evening. Um, I haven't had cable for a long time, so I cannot say as to the latter half of your question, Joshua, because I don't have the ability to channel flip and haven't for a while. I mean, when I did, I can tell you that the most common films that I would stop and go with would be any given John Carpenter movie. Yeah. Like really almost any of them. You just go, oh, this is a great movie. And I know everything that's happened because I've seen it so many times. So <laughs> we'll just go ahead and watch it no matter what point it is, whether it's The Thing or Big Trouble in Little China, which incidentally, Big Trouble is one of the movies that I will willingly open up the disc, put in and rewatch on a regular basis. And in fact, that we did a, uh, a special commentary for, which if you are a subscriber. Which is your subscriber and a subscriber only because you missed you already missed the 48-hour initial window where it's free for everyone. If you're a subscriber, you can listen to that with me, Richard, and Melissa having a lot of fun at the expense and for the benefit of John Carpenter's Big Trouble in Little China. Absolutely. Uh, in fact, our site has been going through the Carpenter films in general. Every time we're having a discussion, what should we do next? We both have to shout each other down like we can't keep doing <laughs> just John Carpenter films. Yes, you can. <laughs> yes, you can. Uh, but I, I know you're going to hate me for this, but honestly, any given one of the first three uh, Lord of the Rings films is one that I'll just go, you know what? I want to I want to turn out all the lights. I want to turn the volume way up and just enjoy the shit out of myself watching this beautiful, beautiful spectacle. Where's Saruman gone? <laughs> oh, he's up in the tower. Don't talk of him ever again. I own the extended cuts, Richard. I can see what happens to Saruman. Yeah, what? You, you mean when he goes back to his home planet? <laughs> yes. Yes. He was a no harrowing the Shire. That's where Scientology came from. <sighs> 
You'll get angry letters now. I got angry letters just because I mentioned that Tom Cruise was a Scientologist. No, Literally. We've had much fun at the expense of Scientologists. Hey! Sorry. Join us. We're, you know what? We're us. equal opportunity uh, faith bashers, and I apologize for that. But, you know, I don't. I'm a terrible, terrible person. And you can <laughs> go to bed happy, feeling all warm and snugly, knowing that I've admitted that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, you know, when I was growing up, it was really whatever was either A, on HBO, which at any given time, there were seven things on HBO, <laughs> like a Grease 2, the Beastmaster, you know, uh, at one point it was Beverly Hills Cop was playing constantly on there. It's like those films I watched over and over and over again, or whatever we got for free or for cheap out of the cutout bin at Errol's video uh, on beta. Mind oh. you. I mean, one of the reasons I've seen Buckaroo Banzai like a hundred times is because we had a Betamax copy of that and I just watched it over and over and over <laughs> again. It was I'm, the only film you had. <laughs> it was, we didn't own a lot. I had like the, a couple stuff I'd recorded off television and then like maybe four or five type bought owned titles. I mean, like I've seen, uh, uh, God, what is that, uh, one with Matthew Modine where he believes that, uh, uh, he can fly. And then the whole movie is like where Birdie, uh, Birdie, yeah, yeah. yeah. And but, I've seen that kinda, so many times. You made it sound like a superhero film. It's not. It's actually a su- extremely depressing film about a Vietnam, a heavily mutilated Vietnam veteran. You which made, which you has, made it sound like the like the last great American but, hero. But it does have one of the funniest endings of any movie that shouldn't have a funny ending. Mm. Like like Birdie is this great. Yeah, it's so dark and depressing, and it builds up to this big climactic traumatic ending that seems inevitable and then it's just for a, a like a punch punchline of a joke and yeah. you're like what yeah no <laughs> I, not alan parker's finest I, I love that movie i don't care what anybody says yeah. but uh although what is alan parker's finest out of curiosity would you uh the mississippi burning i'm gonna go with either mississippi the burning or uh, angel heart Angel Heart's probably right. Because the thing is, the the wall is so much other people's work that it's very hard to true, see where true. he comes into it. So, but I think I think as a pure vision, I've got to go with. Either. I think the best narrative is Mississippi Burning, but the best piece of art is probably going to be Angel Heart. Fair enough. Scott Johnson uh, says, "What do you think the breaking point is for an abstract foreign experimental film to the point where it comes ir- becomes irritating or self indulgent?" I want to get into the genre more, but many films feel like the, uh, they lack so much story or character to form an interpretation in the first place. Well, Scott, I it's I don't feel like you can call them a genre. Yeah, it's like abstract foreign experimental films. It's it's not it's not fair to refer to that as a genre because there is no repeating necessary tropes that are in it. You know, I mean, like it's really films that just say we don't want to be part of a genre more yeah. than anything else. We really want to mm-hmm. do something where we feel no allegiance to standard rules, and we know that we're probably not going to get a lot of distribution because of it. Um, and as well, what the breaking point is. That's completely contextual to the film in question I think it's and contextual. the person who's watching it. I, I think that's the that's the more important thing. I mean, there's days where I can sit down and, and watch, you know, pretty much anything for hours and hours and hours. Uh, and there's other days where, like, I'm five minutes in and I'm like, ah, I, I'm just not there. I'm just not in that place. Um, but I think, the, I mean, nobody still has gone further than um, uh, Derek Jarman's Blue which is a blue screen for an hour and a half. No, no, no. That's not true. Andy Warhol's Empire. Eight Ooh. hours of the Empire State Building just shooting the Empire State Building. Yeah, true. Or but Eat I, by Andy Warhol. I, yeah, but I think... I, I think uh, yeah, I think Empire is just him taking the piss. Yeah. I think that, would, that was one of his, his 
joke things. Uh, whereas I, I'm I think, not sure his I think whole career Blue, wasn't that. But. Because it's a, it, you know, it is actually narrated, and it, but it, he just wants you to listen to his voice by staring at a single block of color. Um, I think that, that's, you know, it's a, an amazing way to push experimental cinema. I think it did it phenomenally well. Um, but nobody can ever do it again. No, you can't. I mean, like, now because, it, it because the, the experiment has been done. Yeah. Um, but I, feel, I think if you're looking for stuff like that, I mean, I, I, I we, recent release, we disagreed upon. I really liked, uh, Visitors, uh, Watermark, which we talked, talked about last week. You really liked that a lot. Yeah. Uh, those are two recent examples of, like, really experimental, um. Escape from Tomorrow is one of the Escape ones that everybody's Dora. been talking about, or Under the Skin yeah. is another one. Really, okay. You can't watch experimental film the same way you might be watching a narrative film where you can be watching a narrative. You can watch, uh, let's say from this week, sabotage and do something else at the same time and still have an opinion. You can be about watching something else at the same time <laughs> and still have an opinion about sabotage. You know, I mean, you can do multiple things at the same time. You can kind of half pay attention to a narrative film and still get the gist of it. Abstract films, experimental films, you have to really give them your complete attention or you are never going to get it, as it were. Yeah. Even if it's you're capable of getting it, it may just not be speaking to you. And that's the thing I think about a lot of these films. And this is a healthy thing for film. Not every film is for everybody, yeah. nor should it be. And these are films that are as niche as you get. You know, I mean, even David Lynch, who's probably the most populist of all the art filmmakers, with the exception of maybe Inland Empire, um, is making films that are still very directed at a limited audience. And, and yeah, and also that you can do something to a film that makes it experimental. Uh, one of my favorite installation pieces in recent, it, well, it wasn't even that recent, I mean, it must have been good 16, 17 years ago, um, was a thing called 24 Hour Psycho, where they slowed down Psycho to take 24 hours to be projected. <laughs> and it was actually phenomenal because you're watching it in the, and it, this is, this says something to how you can sometimes pay attention to a film in a, in an elevated way. Uh, ooh, elevated, aren't we, Posh? Um, <laughs> but it, you know, I just watched the sequence, I, I, I went to the, 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 uh, gallery where it was being screened and I just watched the sequence where the detective walks into the house. And, you know, that's like a 10 second, uh, moment in, in the film where he just gets out of the car, walks into the house. There was something really amazing about watching it slow down to take, you know, a good two minutes. And I'm just like, this is weird and creepy and wonderful. I'm seeing little things in the frame that you just don't have time to we see. We're very different people, Richard, because I would avoid that like the play. <laughs> it was actually weirdly cool. Like, I, mean, it, I tried to sit through the uh, the Shining on top of the Shining with the the. the <laughs> have you seen that? With shining they, backwards and forward. Yeah, yeah, where they play the Shiner Shining backwards and forward, just overlaid on top of each other. <laughs> the Shining. To watch them at the same time, and I was like, lasted ten minutes and went, nope. Nope, no interest. Goodbye. Headache. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of morbidly interested in, in seeing that, but I, and I hear it does do some interesting things occasionally, but I'm not sure about the... I, I don't think anybody... I, I think my argument against the whole, well, you know, if you watch them backwards and forwards, there's a mirror thing. Nobody who was making a film at that point could have necessarily been able to go back and... and do the kind of tweaks that would have been required to make it truly mesh up. It's just, yeah. you know, the technology and the timing wasn't there. And in fact... Um, you know, considering that Kubrick was going in and tweaking it well after it was released, 
I, I think that blows a big hole in that. I mean, he he made edits and cuts, so it, like it's you know you can't do that and have it work. Yeah, I mean, I think if you look hard enough at anything for something, you're going to find something like what you're looking for. I mean, there's a long history of conspiracy theories that prove that exactly. You look hard enough for anything, and things will start to seem like there's meaning when there's not. I mean, Dark Side of the Moon and Wizard of Oz, same thing. It's coincidence, and they've said it a billion. How many times does Pink Floyd have to say? We did not design this to sync up with Wizard of Oz. We promise. It's funny. We've seen it. It does, in fact, seem to have an effect, but it is completely coincidence because it is, and sometimes that kind of shit happens. And even if, even if you were high enough to come up with that idea, if you were that high, you wouldn't you wouldn't be able to actually execute it. Yeah. So there you go. So yeah, and they were that high. Oh uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> we got any more questions? Only Tool could do that. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> anyway, no, that's it for questions. Oh. Uh, one last word on that, Scott. Yes, just make sure you're heavily caffeinated before you watch anything that you're, you know, you're worried about your attention span with. Because if you find yourself, like, if you're too tired, maybe laying down, you're not awake enough, you're going to have trouble focusing on something that's going, not really, like, explaining everything for you, that you have to really focus on. You have to really concentrate to figure out what's going on sometimes. Make sure you're in the right state for it, yeah. is all. I don't mean a mushrooms. <laughs> Although, then you may depending have on the trouble. film, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and then you're like describing a completely different film to your friends. They're like, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> we did not see that film. I don't know what you're talking about. Well, let's uh, open up this show uh, now that we're going to the reviews <laughs> with Open Grave. See what Ooh. I did there? So I see what you did there. Opened the show with Open Grave. Yeah. That was a thing. Same word, open. Huh? You like that? That was clever. I, it wasn't. <laughs> it would happen to be the first one on my list anyway. Open Grave is a horror suspense film starring Shalto uh, Copley, an, an unlikely star, if there ever was one, who apparently had no interest in being an actor before he was in District uh, th- uh, 13. Like that was District one, 9. District 9. So I always want to say District B13, District 13, District 9. I get them all mixed up. Um, District 9. And now he's being cast in a whole bunch of stuff. Yeah. And Open Grave is not a... Uh, Film by that same director. It's by Gonzalo Lopez Gallego. I was. Were you familiar with I this guy? I think it's Gallego. Gallego. Yeah, because uh, no Pete Gallego. Uh, so who it's... did Apollo eighteen, which uh, I could not stand. Yeah, absolutely hated. And the King of the Mountain, which I never saw. Apollo eighteen just felt like one of those like it worked for higher bets, quite frankly. Yeah, uh, and it just didn't have anything good to it. Open Grave has a lot more ambition than uh, Apollo eighteen does, and clearly is a more personal film to him. Even while I still think, well, let me just say this. When you have a film that's a puzzle film where you have to figure out what's happening, where are the characters, who are the characters, why are they doing what they do, you've got to have an answer that's striking, Yeah, you know, for what it is. And I feel that Open Grave being a genre film doesn't have a very striking answer for it. It's actually, for today's films, a pretty banal answer. Yeah. But that being said... It's a nice process watching them get there. Copley finds a guy who awakes in the middle of a pit full of dead bodies, dead and rotting bodies. Doesn't know who he is or how he got there. He, he finds a gun in among the bodies and puts it in his waistband and starts screaming for help. And a woman throws a rope down to the pit. He climbs down and escapes, finds his way to a house where there are five other people in the house. None of them can remember how they got there either or who they are. The only difference being is all of them have IDs on them so they can at least know what their names were supposed to be. Uh, he doesn't even have that. Uh, and there's a mute woman, uh, a mute Asian woman who doesn't speak English and they're not really sure if she remembers or not because she can't communicate with any of them. However, they all start 
figuring out little bits and pieces about their former lives. Like one of them keeps figuring out, wow, I can speak a whole bunch of languages. And Charlton in question keeps having these disturbing flashbacks as little bits of his memory start coming back to them. Of course, as you do, they start fighting with each other and trying to figure out, like, you know, is one of them responsible for what's going on? They're all kind of pointing a finger at Shalto because he was in a pit of dead bodies. Which, you know, <laughs> seems a bit suspicious. Seems a bit suspicious, indeed. Um, and there's even worse, the whole surrounding area of the property is filled with corpses tied with barbed wire and ropes to trees. Um there's a crazy woman tied up in a house, like who's like eyes glazed over, totally bizarre creature, just shrieking at anyone who comes near them, and lots of other weird little things that they discover as they're trying to figure out their surroundings. So once again, puzzle film, everyone bit by bit trying to figure out who they are, alliances being formed, alliances disintegrating, nobody trusting each other, potential for a really good movie that I couldn't help but feel ultimately falls flat because of the answer being so, well, okay, I guess if you say that's what it is. Yeah, I mean, it's it's very conventional. There isn't really a plot twist you don't see coming a mile away. Yeah. But I think it's saved um, by actually having some really good performances. Okay. Yeah, I think Charlita Copley you know, is, is a just natural star. I really, I, yeah, a huge yeah, fan I of his work in, in uh, District 9. Um, was I saying Shalto Copley? I think I was. Yeah, um, I, I'm a you know, huge, you know, huge fan of... Uh, you know, I, I know a lot of people uh, disagree on this. I liked Elysium a lot, and I think it was one of the major reasons I liked I, it. I actually agree with you completely on that. Yeah, I think he, I, I, he's... I, and, and in this, you know, he... This is probably the most demanding in some ways of him as an actor because there's not a huge amount in the script that's innovative uh, but he does something really fascinating and even when you're kind of thinking is this guy actually potentially a mad serial killer you're kind of like I, I hope he's not because I like him but he yeah. is kind of weird looking and, and you know kind of very much supporting character kind and of guy you, you, but he really carries this well uh, you also, question how much of that is is the director playing with that the idea that we're we become aware that through the use of massive use of anti-heroes lately that you can sell almost any protagonist and as sympathetic as long as they're the protagonist yeah. to audiences and i wondered for a while watching this is that what they're doing here yeah. or is he or do i genuine do i have a real re- reason for wanting him to be heroic and not a villain uh, um you know uh, thomas kretschmann uh, who was always great in this. Great in this. And also, um, Erin Richards, who was in the markedly subpar The Quiet Ones. Um, much more mature performance here. Much more interesting. Yes. Um, and, you know, in, in places- and she was in, uh, she played Detective Nancy Reed in Being Human. Ah. The British show. So yeah. I knew I had seen her in something else, and that was it. Yeah, I mean, I... This, there's nothing new here. But you compare this to something like, well, uh, something we reviewed last week, uh, SX Tape, which there was nothing new there and it wasn't done in a new way. Yeah. I think there's actually something here that where there's a degree of acting weight going on here. It's, it's well, you know, there's, there's some nice shots. There's some really striking images that, again, aren't necessarily innovative, but they're really well handled. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, there, there's just enough to justify watching this film it, the you know, thing is, in, it, in a competitive in a in a a kind of survival horror market that's very competitive at the yes. moment this is definitely a top tier it doesn't really make any missteps no. per se outside of just like ultimately what their concept being 
is just not as interesting as it should be. Yeah. You know, it's like someone giving you a ton of fanfare for something, going, this is going to be so great. Oh, you're going to be so excited when you find out what it, what it is. I can hardly wait for you to get this present. And then you open it, and it's like a new razor or a tie or something. Yeah. And you're like, oh, okay, yeah. thanks. I mean, you made it. You had a marching band come out and strippers and everything, and that was great. I really enjoyed the buildup. But... I, I will also say the the final shot is phenomenal. Yes. There's a great, like, it it kind of botches the initial bit of the landing, but then there's this final moment where you go, a little epilogue part. Yeah, yeah, it's a little on the nose, but then it does a a thing right at the end where I go, you know what? I'd actually quite like like to see where they go with the rest of this world building. Agreed. Well, you know what? Let's talk about a film I think we both did enjoy quite a bit, another festival film, and that is Blue Ruin. Oh. Uh, yeah. Now, if you have any sort of critics that re- review, that regularly go to festivals or review art films, you've probably already seen them posting, holy shit, you guys, seriously, Blue Ruin is has just come out. You really, really need to go see it. It is a uh, southern gothic-y film noir uh, that uh, premiered at the Cannes Film Festival, uh, and we saw it South by Southwest, I believe it was? Um, no, it was... Uh, Are you sure? Fantastic Fest. Was it? Yeah. I, say, I keep feeling it. I'm pretty sure it was Fantastic... Yeah, okay. it was. It was Fantastic Fest 2013, because, uh, you know, our memories are slipping. Well, that's probably why I don't remember it as well as mm-hmm. you did. So why don't you talk about this one? Uh, uh, this, is, this is not a... a what you would have expected from Jeremy Solnier and uh, Mason Blair, who, uh, Mason Blair rather, who um, did the the fun but kind of goofy uh, murder party a few years ago. Oh yeah, this I is that. That a fun. phenomenal revenge drama. Uh, Mason Blair plays um, this character called Dwight, who basically it opens. And he's just this, you know, this kind of shell-shocked-looking beach bum who's living rough. Yeah, not a beach bum in the sense of a dude who hang out on the beach, get stoned, and surf a lot. He is a... A bum who lives on on the the beach. beach. (laughs) Um, And, you know, he really seems like there's something deeply psychologically wrong with him, and a very tragic figure, and this is established early on. Um, And then he gets taken in by the local police, and you think, oh, well, he's just been rousted for being homeless, and he's, he's not. It turns out you find out the family history that his father uh, was involved with this local kind of really hicky criminal gang and got killed. Both his parents got yeah, killed. Yeah, both his parents got killed in an extremely brutal way. And the man who killed him is now out on prison. And the prison, the police people in question are, like you said, not there to rouse them. They are worried about him. Yeah, they because feel- he was a regular member of society before this happened. Yeah, and he, he just fell completely apart. And then he he is the most unlikely revenger ever. He decides to go and kill the guy who killed his father. I and mean, like you've got Megan Blair is kind of like has these soulful eyes. He's kind of a bit schlubby and a little bit sad looking. And you realize that Dwight has developed just enough uh, kind of street smarts to be able to you know get by in society just about, but not particularly well. And he gets his revenge. That happens early on. It's then, what next? What happens when you are somebody who you've had one thing to do in your life and you don't have the social skills to get anything else done? Yeah. Where do you go from there? Particularly when now you've pissed off uh, basically what looks to be a bunch of, you know, gun-toting meth heads. And... It, 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 you know, it's, it's a, in some ways a very simple morality tale about the perils of revenge. 
but it is done in this quiet, elegiac way, and it is absolutely carried by a spitfire performance by Megan Blair as as this just beyond battle damaged guy who's like, I did this thing, and now do I, how do I deal with the consequences? Do I even want to? And is forced to, you know, because you, you know he would have just quite happily wandered off over the horizon and just been a bum again, but he's not allowed to, and why he's not allowed to, yeah. and how he deals with the fallout from what he did and tries to take some sense of responsibility is, you know, it's a phenomenal... I, I use that word a lot, but this really is one of these films where I watched it and I was just... You know, I came out and started breathing again. And watching these people who were in his life, who he still has, you know, tenuous connections to, who he's going to for help so he can, you know do what he feels like he needs to accomplish. The only thing he has left in his life as they, they feel bad for the guy, but you know, they're like, you know, this, like the guy he gets his guns from is just like, Oh God, I know I shouldn't be doing this, but you're so pathetic. Yeah. You know, it's heartbreaking watching this guy and you know that he's just better off leaving all of this alone. They're they're enablers and protectors at the same time because they go, you know, you have, you know, you're in a situation where you can't avoid this, so what can I do to make sure that you've got a little bit of a better chance of getting away from people who are far worse than you? And watching this, like you said, this kind of schlubby guy escalate this to a just almost orgy of violence by the end of it, it's just, it, this guy you feel nothing but sympathy for, and then you feel pity for yeah. by the end. You know, you're just like, you kind of stared too long in the abyss. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and it's it's beautifully shot. Uh, you know, this is this is a just a solid recommendation of a film because it's you know it. I think it je- definitely puts Solnia on the on the the map as a a director of real merit. Uh, and you know, Blair, this is you know, this is one of the best performances I saw on the festival circuit last year. Yeah, because it there's nothing. You know, he he looks like your kind of podgy. Uh, you know third best friend ah. but there's there's something so charismatic about this in like without bringing any star power to it just like being there and being present and making you wonder how's he going to get out of this and it, it doesn't you know open grave uh had a lot of predictability about it there is nothing here you will see coming very true and it's not a sequel to blue thankfully no <laughs> <laughs> uh this comes with a feature commentary with the writer directors uh, a no regrets the making of blue ruin about 20 minute documentary that takes a look about having them how them just trying to get the funding together and the time to make this movie these very small filmmakers with not a lot of like credits or you know who who, who built built this movie out of nothing and made it seem like it was made by people who've been making movies for years. Yeah. Uh, there's about five minutes of deleted scenes with commentary. There's a camera test that uh, the, the footage they originally shot to convince investors and actors that this was going to look be badass, and it is indeed. And this, you know what? This is my pick of the week. I, I, I think, yeah, I think this is, the, unless something suddenly mystically appears in the pile later on, I think uh, I, I'm going to put that in, in there as well. I have to say, if I think it represents a really fascinating current move of, of really unrelenting noir. Because I got to talk to the director of the LA Noir Festival, and he said, noir isn't about hats and, and, and 1930s gangster lingo. It's about good people doing bad things. And this is a perfect example of that. And I think this and uh, another film that we we both absolutely loved, Cold in July, mm. uh, by... Uh, 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 adapted by Nick, uh, Nick Dimitri and um, 
Based on Joe Lansdale. It's based on Joe Lansdale. Phenomenal. And a film which I'm really, uh, Austin film, well, a Texas film which I'm really hoping gets released because it's phenomenal. Uh, we've got to get out of this place, mm, which yeah. again has this same kind of, you know, creeping sense of, of, of noir doom about it. And I think, you know, this is just a, a, more people need, a lot of people need to watch this, learn from what it does and go out and do something equally thrilling and, and creative and boundary pushing. Agreed. Uh, well, I can tell you, if this isn't... Hang on, I've got to get off my soapbox. Wait a minute. <laughs> it's a long way up here. Uh, can I get some of that soap? Because now I feel dirty. Um, <laughs> if this isn't going to be your pick of the week, which you don't know yet, as you said, because you haven't gone through the list, it's probably not going to have any competition from our next film, which was a major wide release film uh, from Arnold Schwarzenegger called Sabotage. Get to the chopper! So... <laughs> Arnold is back, and Arnold... It's weird. Uh, Mr. Schwarzenegger recently turned up on an episode of uh, uh, WWE Raw, and I'm not quite sure what happened, but he seems to have shrunk in the past few years, which is very weird, and it's signed that he's getting old. This happens to everybody, and, and this is really about old Arnold Schwarzenegger. He plays this, this guy called Breacher, who is part of a, a kind of a, a DEA Uber SWAT team whose job it is to go in and, and uh, knock on doors of drug leader, uh, drug kingpins, kill them all and take and take their stash. Only they do this one raid and they decide that they're going to take about $10 million of their money. Yeah. Uh, Which, you know, they never, there's no movie that starts this way that ends with everyone just in, with swimming pools, hanging out with movie stars, going, man, and the rest of my life was fantastic. Um, well, no, there was, um... Maybe The Wolf of Wall Street. There was, um... <laughs> no, there wasn't. You're right. It's just, it just can't end well. So they, they do, they, they do the knockdown, kill everybody in the building push $10 million in a sack out of the, uh, through, down through the toilet of, of this place, get down to the sewer to pick it up, and the money is gone. Dun -dun. Fast forward to they're all under investigation for the fact that it's clear that something, something went hinky on here. Uh, and then the investigation goes away because they couldn't get them on it. Let me uh, say right then and here and there, first flaw with this movie, they make a point of blowing up the giant stack of money that's there. Why? Well, fair enough. But the argument is afterwards, well, we could see that clearly some money was missing. I'm sorry, how? Yeah. Exactly. They We watched them blow up the big stack of money. How could you tell any money was missing? Yeah. That doesn't make any fucking sense. And it's it's not like, you know, coked up drug dealer upstairs is going to have the best accounting procedures on the planet. No. On his vault. So like I said... It's got blown up. Yeah. It's that there is no forensic team in the world that could have put that back together. It was uh, Humpty Dumpty. That evidence is gone to a point where you just can't assume. I mean, how do you know that it was? How would they even know that that was the right of money, amount of money that was supposed to be there in the first place? Yeah. So. Logic. You know, and you've got this setup where it's like, yes, everybody's trying to play it nice because, like, they're being investigated. But also, nobody really completely trusts each other anymore because if one of them didn't steal the money, who did? I mean, it's... Basically, it starts off as just them being, you know, an extremely scumbaggy bunch of, of paramilitary DEA agents. And that's, that's one of the things I actually liked about this, that none of them are likable. You know, Schwarzenegger's character, Breacher, is an old school scumbag who likes shooting people in the head. Uh, Sam Worthington, who is unrecognizable as... 
he he looks like he just wandered off the set of Sons of Anarchy. <laughs> he really does. Yeah, he does. You know, um, uh, Terrence Howard, who kind of looks like Terrence Howard. They didn't really well, do yeah, a huge yeah. amount to him. Josh Holloway, kind of the same thing. Uh, uh, Joe Manginello, who actually I really liked in this, and I'd seen a lot more of as kind of the, the real grunt muscle of the team and the closest thing to a conscience. Um, and they start getting investigated. To, for, you know, well, the investigation goes away, and then they start dropping like flies in extremely gruesome ways. Somebody is killing them, and who is it? Is it the mob they stole money from? Is it? And even if it was, how would they know? Is it one of them? Who's doing it? Yeah. And the real question to you as an audience member is, why should you care? Yeah. I mean, it, this got a real roasting uh, at time release. And I'd like to applaud Schwarzenegger for actually doing something a little bit off his, his more recent beaten track. I mean, this kind of goes back to, in, in a way, to like his early performances, when he was just playing a mean badass. He's trying to break away from what people are expecting him to do and try some... I mean, he's realized he only has so many years left in his career, and he doesn't want to, you know... Twins 2 ain't happening. Yeah, well, they actually, I just heard him on The Nerdist, and he's saying that it still is going to happen. Uh, yeah, with uh, with Eddie Murphy as the third twin. Twins 2, we're almost, we're all almost dead. <laughs> uh, yeah, our careers are indeed dead. <laughs> Yeah, and, you know, I understand his reasoning. I want to do something darker, more noirish, but this is just silly through most of it, and and not in a fun way. Silly in a sort of like that doesn't make any sense, or why would anybody ever act that way? Well, or, I gotta say there there's a couple of alternate endings which are included, and I I it very heavily implies from the way I watched them that they got deep into shooting. And changed who the killer was. Hmm. And it really feels like they were like, oh, no, that's not going to work. And we're going to add a coder on that does that takes the film in a completely different direction. Or do you think maybe they were trying to do one of those things so nobody could spoil it to the press? Mm, no, because it, it felt like they had a degree of ambiguity about how they were going to finish it, hmm. but not who the killer was. But then I think it really feels like they must have shot a lot of extra footage to, cha- to have a change in direction. Um, yeah. <laughs> It's David Ayer. It's it's very much his style of film, that kind of you know gritty cop stuff. Uh, it's not for, for a big budget movie with a, with some name stars attached. It's a lot more daring than I think a lot of people would have made, but it's it's just not quite there in a lot of ways. And it does have some really stupid moments. Um, yeah. And, I and thought, still, I found... you know, Schwarzenegger looks the part of the kind of grizzled, aging, sure, uh, uh, aging chief of, of this, this, you know, knock knock squad. But he does not have the acting chops on anybody around him, and there are moments where he's painfully and, and this clear. Is sad when you're talking about he's next to Sam Worthington and he doesn't have the acting chops. Oh, I, I mean, he's got charisma up the yin yang, but he's playing a guy who's supposed to be unlikable and is unlikable. I hate to tell you, but like, either make him a ro- killer robot or make him really likable. Yeah. But I, I don't really see that like making him as this like kind of scumbag character helps him at all. Yeah, I mean, you you could have had so Kurt Russell yes. would have been great. Would in have this pulled part. this off like crazy. Yeah, I mean, and you know, probably would have demanded appropriate script changes somewhere along the line, or or said, you know, you need to actually have the script in place before we start shooting. Which it <laughs> seems you do not. Yeah. I mean, we're to the point that in these, in the uh, the alternate endings, like different people die. That's weird. That's there's a pretty there's some pretty significant changes. And made. this is unusually bloody. 
You know, oh, I mean, yeah. even for a Schwarzenegger film, it's gory. Yeah. Uh, and it's got... There this- is a scene with the best sealed refrigerator I have ever seen in my <laughs> life. Trust me, if you get that far, you'll go, my refrigerator doesn't stay sealed like that. No. That's awesome. Yeah, what are they using? There must be safety pens, right? <gasps> Something. Super glue. Anyway, I gotta say, generally speaking, Sabotage is... It's it's another it's a TNT on a drunk a hungover Sunday afternoon film as I like to say it's like sure if it's on you didn't pay any money for it you got nothing better to do and there's damn sure no way you're getting up off the couch fuck it there are worse ways to spend that afternoon but it is nothing I would go out of my way for. this is not Schwarzenegger's Copland no there we go it is oh yeah film not. history film it's, history it's, folks it's, it's yeah, I I wasn't even as big a fan of the, his last film, the last what was it, the last stand was it? Yeah, as everybody else enough. was, a lot of people really liked it. I found it pretty flawed and only partially entertaining. Um, and and most of the entertainment came from the fact that you got Johnny Knoxville as a lunatic, which I will always watch. But this is a ma- that's a masterpiece next to this. <laughs> this is it's just a big misstep in multiple ways, and it needed two or three final script polishes. Quite frankly, uh, it looks like it wasn't a polished script at all. As I suspect, neither was the next film we're talking about, which is Transcendence. Johnny Depp becomes a supercomputer. Uh, I, I don't I think, think this, this lacked a script polish. I think this thing was polished to death. Okay, you're right. That, that's absolutely better a better way of saying it, because I think that this suffered from way too much overthinking and over-cleansing and over-making sure it would, it would make various, you know, make too many people like it. That being said... I enjoyed this a lot more than most of the other critics did. I'm kind of with Richard Roper on this one that I'm not highly, I wouldn't highly praise it. And I see how flawed it is, but I still thought there was a lot to actually enjoy in this nonetheless. Yeah. I mean, the basic story is that you, um, Johnny Depp plays a, plays a, a computer research scientist. Yeah. Convincing. Um, he's Johnny Depp. He can do whatever he wants. Seemingly. (laughs) See, it's what Hollywood believes. Um, who gets shot by a member of an uh, an anti-artificial uh, intelligence cult, which has emerged, and is slowly dying of radiation poisoning, and manages to get his brain uploaded to a uh, to an AI that he's built that he that he has built slash stolen by his wife Rebecca Hall. Yeah, who you know has reasons for being there, um, <laughs> and it's it's kind of an interesting idea about the singularity which they refer to as transcendence and they should have just referred to as the singularity exactly. because that's what every that, that's like calling calling a train steam emotion <laughs> you know it's just like why come up with this this term um and then his friends start to question exactly whether what they have created is just a virtualized version of him or is something different is a computer with with a sheen of Johnny Depp on it. Uh, Paul Bettany kind of represents the uh, the darkest, his best friend who's kind of like starting a little bit concerned. Morgan Freeman turns up and is Morgan Freeman again. And honestly, this was one of my biggest problems with this. Just stop casting Morgan Freeman. He is doing the same part every single time. It's like, Morgan Freeman is going to, be, going to come out and be wise at us. And I'm like, oh. Ever since um, Robot Chicken spoofed Morgan Freeman by having a Morgan Freeman voice do a voiceover of a reenactment of that time that he got into a car crash with his young relative (laughs) who he's also sleeping with. Uh, And it just kind of like, that was that. Yeah, 
this is what Morgan Freeman does. He just does info dump. But, and that's, okay. I, I, he really, he really, he took me heavily out, and that's a personal thing for me with sure. Freeman. But I, I don't know if I had that same reaction here specifically, uh, and as well with one of his other recent films, the the one with the magicians uh, that were pulling a giant Oh, um, uh, now you see me. Yes, now you see me. In both films, he's playing, you know, the mystical, magical Negro, as as Martin and Corey used to call him, uh, you know, so wise, who turns out to be not as wise as he thought he was, yeah. which I find to be hysterical because that's kind of undercutting the kind of roles we usually see him playing. In fact, that's, if anything, what I found that I liked about this film, because I spent about three, a little under three quarters of it going, here we go, another fucking techno fear film. Mm-hmm. I mean, were you just going to remake Virtuosity next or The Lawnmower Man? I mean, it just, this type of, I always found that type of science fiction, while sometimes, sure, it works, more often than not, I just find it irritating and, 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 uh, really, I mean, this is the film that is making people who fear, like, vaccines feel validated, <laughs> you know? Uh, but then this film turn, turns that around and goes, no, the problem is, is with human beings in and of itself is we're the type of people that fear change so much and we fear not being in absolute control of everything that we're going to destroy ourselves because of it. It's those instincts that are killing us, not the technology that we built that the whole point was to make something that maybe was not going to suffer from those problems being charged. Yeah, but I mean, my problem with, with that is that it, it kind of turns into, you know, the Ray Kurzweil guide to, to why the singular is is wonderful. If you don't know Ray Kurzweil... <laughs> I, I, I'm kind of a fan of Ray Kurzweil. So uh, Ray Kurzweil, the fact that Google uh, in the last few years hired Ray Kurzweil to head up their robotics division and then acquired a whole bunch of military robotics firms, most of the people I know in tech who heard that went, whoa, this is, this is really dangerous because Kurzweil is very much of the, ah, if it can be done, it probably should be done. Yes. You know, there are... Um, a lot of people who are in, in technology are very concerned about about his take, and it kind of goes, "Oh no, Ray's people like Ray are right." Without raising the real, it raises the real concerns. Says, but then you shouldn't be scared, and it kind of like it flips in the, like you say, it flips in the in the final quarter. Um, it, it, this looks, I mean, even depending where you stand on the morality of it, I think, uh, and the morality of, of constructing truly sentient AIs. Uh, and the real question of the singularity, I think, will affect how you view this. You'll either think, well, no, it's, it, it makes some good points, or you're going to go, no, it's kind of frustrating. True. Um, and, and I like the fact that this is a something that takes a very serious issue and doesn't, you know, overblow it or do, like you said, Lawnmower Man. Um, this is the first film directed by Wally Fister, phenomenal cinematographer, worked a lot with Chris Nolan. Um, <sighs> I think... The biggest problem with this as a piece of filmmaking is it is incredibly one note. I didn't That's feel true. any variety. It looks gorgeous, but it it really doesn't. It always have a high this, or a low point. It has a, a very somber tone that never lets up throughout the whole thing, and it never feels like it really hits a plateau yeah. either. It just kind of stays on the same tone all the way through it, as well as it asks that question that you can't help but ask at points of this because, like, I mean, this. He's become so powerful as to be nigh omnipotent. And then you go, well, then why was he incapable of doing things in this scene that he was in those scenes? Like, it's got those kind of script problems where you go, come on, you either can do this stuff or you can't. Stop changing the rules in your own movie. And that's very frustrating. But I thought in terms of a film that is 
I thought it, the point was to kind of, yeah, Ray Kurzweil, if you will, but deconstruct the horror films we generally see with this sort of like, it's techno fear and yay, humanity wins or loses horribly again. It has, it completely undercuts that with a, here's a third option. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, I, I liked that. I, I mean, I think if you, if you're going to talk about singularity, the singularity and uh, AI films recently, I think this is for me was really hurt by this kind of wants to be an action film in places and yeah. yet still very smart. And on the, the action sequences aren't that great. And from a smart point of view and from a kind of philosophy of AI's point of view, it pales in significance to, uh, by comparison to her, which a, a, very a true. phenomenal film that I absolutely adore that I, I will. Yeah. We were talking about films that we go back and re- readily rewatch that beginning sure. to end Absolutely. i still feel there's a lot to be got from that movie and i think that says more about you know this almost gets the point of going oh we'll create ais and then they'll ju- be just like people whereas her says we create ais that are going to be like people where do they go from there and i think that's a much more profound question i, I will say that this is uh one of a series of films that are taking the tone lately of humanity is going to fail because we're humanity um, that, that, I mean, most recently Dawn of the Planet of the Apes and other like, look, we were, we were never supposed to make it. Yeah. You know, we got as far as we can get and now we're going to destroy ourselves because we have certain flaws that we can, when we just can't get past the while we're humans. Uh, and I mean, in that sense, this is a very dark film once again. And I'm kind of curious to know why that's becoming a trend right now in Hollywood. Are we all feeling that dour about ourselves now? Well, we are assholes. I mean, I, I, when I'm feeling that way, you know what I do? I put in a season of Star Trek Next Generation and watch it because then I go, you know what? I still believe that someday maybe we can have that future. I'm going to slip in a copy of a, a, a Duck Dynasty disc one day when you're not watching, and then <laughs> oh, you will, then you will understand how doomed we are. <laughs> oh, I don't want to see what happens when the captain of that ship says, "Come." Oh. Anyway, uh, let's move on to a little horror film that snuck out on DVD this week called Cell 213, starring uh, television staple Eric Balfour, who you may have seen in any number of various television shows. In everything. I mean, he's, yeah, Haven is one of his big roles right now, but he was also Milo on 24. He's just, like, you name it. He's, like, lots of little horror movies. Like, he was in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake. Uh, he was actually, one of his early roles was in Can't Hardly Wait as a small role. Funny thing about Can't Hardly Wait, go back and watch it again. Almost every actor in that film, down to the little people who appear on camera for three seconds, has gone on to a career where you'll recognize them now. It, it's the dazed and confused of its time. It kind of, even more than dazed and confused. Like, I rewatched that recently. I was like, wow, there's not as many people who made a big career out of this as I thought there was. But can't hardly wait. Yeah, almost yeah. everybody. Um, he, he was also rather tragically uh, in Skyline. Yeah. Uh, and strangely, this movie came out all the way back in 2010, is only now getting a, a release. Uh, now, he's not the only star, so don't worry. You've also got Bruce Greenwood playing hey! a mysterious prison warden. And Michael Rooker playing Yay! What, who you'd expect Michael Rooker to play in a prison, which is either A, like a top dog prisoner who is sadistic and tortures people, or B, a top dog prison guard who is sadistic and tortures people. I and have a vision is- that, there is a, that somebody makes a live-action version of the Venture Brothers, and uh, he uh, and Michael Rooker in great in a really heavy gorilla suit uh-huh. uh, plays great Ray Pape. Oh, good. Because I think I think that is is where that's where his way, career is heading. Do you think uh, at this point? Hey, 
if if somebody can get the money together for a live action Venture Brothers movie, I want that to be the best cast ever because it's going to be the greatest movie in the history of the world. Well, here he is playing B, the sadistic uh, and torturing prison guard. The idea being here is Eric Balfour is a successful and pretty scummy uh, defense lawyer who is on basically in, in in court, and it's become clear that he paid a guy off to scare off the the prosecution's head witness. And uh, he goes to the prison, in fact, to basically get the final paperwork done and let this guy know, okay, you, I won your case and you've been free. And the guy, what we see there around him, there's this little girl that only can, he can see in the cell with him who looks like a Japanese horror character, all wet with hair in her face. Uh, and he's like, I did it. I, 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 I took the girl and I, I, I raped her. And then I'd show her I still had more power than her. I held her throat till she died and I threw her in the water. And then he turns to the guy and goes, you're next, and grabs his pen in his hand and stabs himself in the neck with it several times. Um, watching all of this is Michael Rooker, who we've established earlier, thinks this lawyer is a piece of shit, who he is, in fact, a piece of shit, uh, and says, I saw the whole thing. He stabbed that guy, knowing that that's not, in fact, what happened, because Michael Rooker is a piece of shit, too. Uh, flip to next. There's Balfour in his Oz oranges walking through the, uh, you know, it's not the new block here, uh, walking into this prison where they put him in the exact same cell. Guess what the cell number is? Uh, 213. 213. Ooh. Cell 213 that uh, his, his previous uh, client was in. And right off the bat, weird shit, the kind of weird shit that you don't just go, huh, that's peculiar, but like go, wait, I know I'm not on any drugs because I just got here, starts happening, like words being carved spontaneously in the wall right in front of him, like a, a doll appearing in the toilet, like like that that immediately bursts into a thousand moths, stuff like, you know, stuff out of your any given <laughs> horror movie tropeville uh, from the last 10 years or so. And it comes clear that apparently that room is like the ghosts of whoever, like that person wronged are going to come back and torment them. And it tries, the movie tries so hard to kind of Jacob's ladder this a little bit. You know, you remember the famous Danny Aiello speech, you know, mm-hmm. when you think you're dying and, uh, and, and you hold on too tight, you see demons tearing your life away, you know, that sort of shit. Uh, except that's, it's not a twist ending, if you will. It's just the whole idea is that God and the devil both testing this man. And not a it, twist ending, and it's not that good. It wants to be a lot smarter than it is. And at the very end, not a twist, really, is just has this very silly moment where the female lead here, who is an investigating uh, police officer of the that investigates the prison systems, is... Basically, going to one character, are you God or the devil? It's like, oh, shut the fuck up. You're just stupid. <laughs> it Nobody has ever had that conversation in public. This has actually got pretty good production value. And Bruce Greenwood is effectively creepy. And Michael Rooker is effectively Michael Rooker. <laughs> and Eric Balfour turns in a perfectly serviceable performance. But ultimately, there's too much stuff here that's stolen from other much better films. And it feels- well, The question is, like, you know, considering this was actually shot in 2008... We're, <laughs> yeah, and just seems to be lurking around forever, and suddenly getting released for. I'm presuming because uh, Michael Rooker is, is his yeah. star is so in the ascendant that somebody was going around and going, "Hey, all this stuff that Michael Rooker did back when like nobody was prepared to touch him with a barge pole." Yeah, we can pick that up for a song and, and 
put his name on the title uh, on, on the box and, and get some some money out of it. I mean, that's probably exactly what happened. Yeah. And like I said, this is this feels like one of those ones somebody made knowing they'd probably sell it to Cinemax for their regular movie rotation and and, and Netflix or something like that. And then even that didn't happen. They're like, oh, okay, well we'll put it on the shelf and maybe one of these guys will get more famous eventually, which is exactly what happened. Uh, it's watchable. Parts are enjoyable, but overall, it's not terribly scary. And like I said, there's nothing here you haven't really seen before. It's just mashed up uncomfortably into the same movie. All right, moving on to something I do, in fact, recommend. All-time classic. Uh, I think I don't even remember if it was remote viewing or digital noise. I reviewed this before. I think it was over about a year ago. Uh, Shogun. One of the greatest miniseries ever made on American television. Yep. Uh, they are re-releasing the shit out of this thing lately. They just put out a really great DVD box set of this about a year ago, and now they put it out on Blu-ray. This is based on the novel, a, a really fantastic, exciting read by James Clavell. I, I really love his books. Yeah. I've read them all multiple times, all of them, usually about an American in Japan who gets, like, the shit taken out of him <laughs> one way or the other. This originally came out in 1980 on NBC. Uh, apparently the only USA TV show or miniseries to be filmed entirely on location in Japan. And this was, the, this was the show that really kickstarted the kind of eighties fascination with Japanese culture. This is where yep. it really comes from. Absolutely. As well as just like the, the height of the American mini television miniseries when they were just this was such a success. They just started pumping these fucking things out after this. <laughs> the Thornbirds was another big one they put out at this time. Uh, Herman Wook's Winter War. Yep. Yeah. There was a ton of them. Uh, and, and that era appears to be largely over, although Stars Network has put out some good ones as of late. Uh, Terrible TV shows, pretty good miniseries. Hey, Lifetime's done some as well. Oh, shut up. Uh, God, we've got Petals in the Wind coming up Flowers soon. in the Attic, Flowers in the Attic, creepy I told, I told you Petals in the Wind is on the way. Right? I know. Oh, oh, in fact, can I point out that I said it was coming, and you went, no, nah, I don't think it's really going to happen. They wouldn't dare. And I went, the trailer's out. And you went, oh, I still don't think it's going to happen. I'm like, it, this shit's happening. And you're like, now it is coming. I am the creepier not gonna, books I'm not going to watch them all. I'm just not. I may have to just because The Flowers in the Attic was so hilarious. Well, anyway, this, however, was good. This was very Legitimately good. Legitimately good. Uh, this is, I, I, I guess, like, I think the original story is based loosely on a real story, but just loosely. It, it's it's not horribly far off. I mean, they're like the, yeah. uh, it, some of the facts are kind of blurred because it's television and you've got to, like, you know, beef it up a bit. And Clavel beefed up the drama. Basically, it's the true story of um, uh, William Adams, uh, Re, uh, renamed here as John Blackthorne because that's, that's a, a more much television cooler name. name. John uh, Blackthorne. Uh, uh, played by uh, Richard Chamberlain. Yay! Yay! This was also like a high point in his career as yeah. well. Um, who kind of finds himself wrecked uh, of the island uh, of Japan sure, I've been at a point when Japan, you know, you foreigners were not allowed on mainland Japan. Like, yep. like access to Asian ports was extremely heavily regulated, not just by the Japanese, but also by agreements with uh, particular traders from particular nations who had exclusive rights to particular cities. So this becomes a, uh, you know, he's kind of balancing being both a European, but being a very particular kind of European while becoming immersed in Japanese culture. Indeed. And he becomes so immersed in Japanese culture, he actually immerses himself in a Japanese woman. Hey! <laughs> because a large part of this is, in fact, a love affair with him and the Lady Mariko. You know, do you wonder if Frank Miller 
stole Mariko from this? Because the I, I name was, of the woman that Wolverine falls in love with in a similar by. circumstance. I think, it was, I think it was influenced by. Okay. I, I've, I've often wondered if that was... Uh, yeah, know. you do get the feeling that the, the, the Wolverine miniseries may have had uh, uh, the odd touch here or there. Well, not Frank. I guess Chris Claremont wrote it. but Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, Miller just drew, did the art from it. Uh, and, like... His whole, like, going from, like, a completely naive Englishman to learning, because this takes place over quite a period of time, over learning about Japanese culture, over learning the language, of becoming, actually becoming a samurai himself, uh, and, you know, becoming ingratiated to and even friends with, ultimately, the warlord Shogun, is a fascinating arc to watch happen. I mean, this is really, like, I edge your seat isn't the right word, but... um like, you're never going to be bored here yeah. watching this play out and learning so much about Japanese culture at this time. And it's just excellent, excellent television. And it's no set question. against the background of the uh, the Shogunate Wars, uh, the, you know, the massive civil wars that ripped through um, uh, Japan at the time. And I, I watched this TV series when it was on the first time around, so yes, showing my age. Um, <laughs> Me too. But Me it, too. It, it re- you know, even when I was that young, I understood the politics of it. and I, And it made... You know, historic Japanese cultures seem different and, and alien to me, but at the same time explained by me. So we, and, and there's this great sequence where, you know, Chamberlain's character is, you know, he's, he's worked really, really hard to learn Japanese, really struggled with it. And everybody's laughing and he can't work out why. And he's, it's because at that point, male Japanese and female Japanese were distinct languages. Right. And so he's talking like a woman, which everybody finds hilarious. And it's this little moment where you kind of get this insight and go, oh, hang on. But then, you know, beyond those, it is also an epic war series, which is, you know, and it does not fall back from going, hey, people are dying left, right and center in the middle of this. And you don't get too attached to characters because there is a good possibility they will not make it through oh, to the it's, end. It's very violent. There's lots of big surprises. Characters they make you fall in love with, die off. Uh, and it's got like Orson Welles doing the narration. Uh, Toshiro Mifuni is Lord Taranaga, really the, the one of the primary. Uh, he's not the antagonist. He's kind of like a, and he's almost a parallel protagonist in a weird sort of way as yeah. it goes along. Um, and John Rhys Davies in one of his first big roles here as a Portuguese pilot, Vasco Rodriguez. Now there's another badass action hero name there. Vasco, Vasco Rodriguez. Rodriguez. You need help? You call for Vasco Rodriguez. Vasco Ro- Rodriguez. <laughs> Detective and international luchador. I like it. Yep. Uh, highly, 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 highly recommend this if you've never seen it before, and it's never looked better than it does on Blu-ray, with lots of new supplements in there, commentary with the director, uh, various featurettes, trying to give an idea of the historical perspective of what really happened versus, you know, what's happening in the thing, and in a making of Shogun, great stuff, well worth your time. Hey! I wish I could say as much for another Olive Films. Olive Films, a company that's been putting out, they've been, uh, they've been putting out Decent quality Blu-rays of not classic, but memorable films that were unfortunately forgotten anyway, uh, over time. They, they get, they pick up all these smaller films and, you know, the, it's kind of a film education in and of itself of stuff out that, that lay between the major releases that we, we remember that aren't bad. And this is, I guess, one of those. I mean, you've got Ginger Rogers playing versus William Holden. Uh, it's called Forever Female. 
terrible name for the it, record. It, <laughs> I was like, it was what? the 50s. It was not a high watermark for, for, for cinema names. Oh, yeah, it's 1954, and it won the Golden Globe uh, in 1954. <laughs> Which, it, again, not a, not a sign of quality, it being the Golden Globes. And uh, as well, Ginger Rogers in a r- role where she never dances. Nah. And, you know, she's a little bit older here, and she plays a woman who's a little bit older, Beatrice Page, who has just appeared in a new play that's a complete flop, even though the critics are all saying, oh, Beatrice Page is wonderful as always in this. She's a longtime theater actress, very well-known, very beloved, but even everybody's starting to notice she is reaching that point where maybe she's about... She's past the plateau of her career. And she knows it, but she doesn't want to admit it. Uh, she's working with her ex-husband, who she still is friends with and strings along, basically. I mean, she's got a long rope tied to the end of his cock, basically, <laughs> and is pulling him along because he lives in hope that maybe they'll still get back together at some point. Um, and she she doesn't know what to do next, but she figures she'll just do whatever her ex-husband gives her to do because that's what she's always done. But they meet this... William Holden, who is this uh, bitter, cynical, humanist director who, or a writer who's just finished his first script, and he's very like, oh, you people are all stupid, and none of y'all will care about this, but then it, it gets slipped out, and everybody reads it and goes, this is phenomenal. You know what would make it better? I have lots of suggestions. <laughs> uh, and he gets sucked into the system in this world where, you know, he ends up in an, involved in a, a, a relationship with Beatrice Page that he didn't even really want to be in, but he thinks that's what you're supposed to do. And it's sort of like the seduction of Broadway, uh, you know, the to this guy that that wasn't who he was at all. While the whole time there's this young ingenue uh who is uh, Sally Carver, played by Pat Crowley, who uh, they thought was going to be a huge star because at the end credits, they're like an introducing a future Paramount major star, Pat Crowley. <laughs> it's like, who? Yep. <laughs> but she is adorable. What, if what not- did she go on to do, though? I actually don't know. I didn't really. Because I, rec- I recognize the name from somewhere. It's one of those like, okay, I'm sure she was in other stuff, but I, you know, nothing that really went made me go, oh, like Money from Home, Hollywood or Bust. Uh, a lot of TV stuff. One-offs in TV stuff. Yeah, so yeah. it's like, she, yeah, she did not go on to the big career they were hoping for. Uh, and she's like this like, character is like, oh, I read it early. The biggest problem is you can't change anything. It's supposed to be about a 19-year-old, and you changed it to be about a 29-year-old, and you just ruined the whole thing. And she's like, she's a stalker. She's like a crazy fucking stalker <laughs> of, of William Holden's character. And you're the, the movie wants you to have sympathy for her. And I'm like, no, she's crazy town. I mean, like, way crazy town. Like, seriously problems break out into tears when someone doesn't immediately pay attention to her. Like, do huge acts of attention seeking. Like, yeah, someone that from a hundred, even the characters in the film are saying, you know, this bit chick is like nuts. Stay away from her. And yet the movie still wants us to ultimately really, really like her. I had problems with that. I had problems with the fact that nobody but William Holden is really likable. And he's supposed to be the guy who's not that likable. Yeah. He's the guy I'm like identifying with. I'm like going, I can see why this guy looks at things the way he does and and how he got seduced and his solution ultimately to these things. But everyone else is kind of a prick. (laughs) I don't know. I I think the biggest problem is just that maybe it just that we have things have changed enough. We just can't identify with things the way we used to. We don't have the sort of naive optimism that that people did back then. But I don't know. 
I, I, I had to give this one a pass, ultimately. Just not taken with it. Not one of the ones I really liked. I was surprised to the fact that I actually got a lot of enjoyment out of Appleseed Alpha, which is the prequel to the long-running genre, I guess, at this point, because there's not they're not all on the same storyline of Appleseed films. Do they keep rebooting this damn thing so regularly? Well, that, originally it was what? It was it a, a single movie first, I think, and then a TV series yeah. or something? And I saw... I know, it was a ma- wasn't it a manga, then a movie, then a, then a TV series? I remember at one point somebody gave me a video cassette, and I don't know if it was part of the TV series or the movie or what, but it was some of the early Appleseed stuff, and it was great. I was like, wow, this is really cool. And this has nothing in common with that other than the fact that the cyborg guy looks like the cyborg guy from the other thing. Yeah. <laughs> That's about the only thing I could see that seemed to be similar. Now, you guys out there that are big manga or anime fans, I know you're right now going, no, no, you're probably, I'm probably wrong about something already. Yeah, I probably am. I admit it. So relax. You can correct <laughs> me, but there's no need to be mean about it. This is a prequel to the last Appleseed movie they did uh, in, I believe it's 2007, I think? Appleseed Ex Machina? I think? I'm not sure. Either way, this is a prequel to the last Appleseed thing they do. The first... Although we'll probably now be a reboot uh, to start the entire franchise over again. This is entirely done in very high-end CG. Very high-end. Like, really looks gorgeous. Like, there there was no expense spared in terms of the way this thing looks. I mean, even as far as character designs, who were all like... You know, I remember the first time I saw Final Fantasy in the movie and going, wow, you guys really... Like, almost made it over that uncanny valley hump with the way these characters look. They just look that good. And I think I can say that about this as well. They've spent, they really wanted these characters to be real. Uh, and the story here, um, and as much as I understand it, because I think even with it being a prequel, there are areas of this film that depend on you being hyper familiar with the Appleseed universe. Yeah. Uh, like, they are, uh, 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 was there? There was not even a character called Appleseed anywhere in here. So no, because I was confused it, it, about that. Well, this is kind of. If you don't know the background of the Appleseed franchise, the basic idea is it's a post-apocalyptic world where everywhere has been pretty much laid to waste. Uh, but there's a there's a a one idealized city that's still hanging in there called Olympus. But it, it, at this point in the Appleseed franchise, the central characters. Um, of uh, Dunan and her uh, cyborg partner, uh, Briarios, uh, they're just kind of working their way through the world. She still believes that there's this place out there called Olympus that they can get to. Uh, he's not as convinced. They're working uh, in a really ruined New York as enforcers for another cyborg uh, boss called uh, Two Horns. Who is totally lovable, I'm sorry. Who is hilarious. I it's just, just such a spook. I know he's supposed to be more of a villain than not, but I just wanted to give him a great big hug. And he's kind of like, he's, <laughs> he's a fat cyborg. Yeah. Uh, although in Appleseed terms, like cyborgs, really there's like minimal uh, organics left. They're yes. mostly just big robots. I mean, you get the idea because Dunan and Nebreros are in a relationship, but you get the idea that he used to be a lot more human yeah. and over the years has had so many parts replaced that he's practically all cyborg now and really it's purely an emotional relationship at yeah. this point. Uh, and everything is changed when they end up uh, during a mission encountering uh, 
a sort of half cyborg guy with some, which I'm once again being not clear enough with the tech in the world that they're here. They're going, Oh my God, we've never seen anything like you. And I'm like going by comparison to the other cyborgs we see him. He seems awfully old fashioned yeah. to me, but you know, I've got to believe what they say with it. They encounter him and a young girl and a couple like other cyborgs with them who don't last very long fighting <laughs> against these. Like un- they were obviously wearing red shirts underneath their, the rest it, of their outfits. Exactly, and obviously there's people hunting them down, and they claim that uh, they're from uh, they're from Olympus, and they think they found a way to save the world. Uh, but the villains are the the leader of New York who took it over by force, a warlord cyborg named Talos, uh, and. Two horns himself is like they're there at end odds against each other, and this turns into those the enemy of my enemy is is my friend type of scenarios, which I'm thankful for because like once again, two horns, awesome in my yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> but uh, Dunin and Brieros, despite Brieros's own cynicism, ends up finding himself in a position where he loves Dunin so much he follows her wherever she's going to go, and ends up finding new optimism and hope for the future. Maybe there really is an Olympus or what have you. Well, as far as I remember from, you know, it's been many, many years since I watched uh, the original film and about as long since I read the um, the manga. But the, the idea is that they are the apple seeds. That's where the title comes from, that, that in a, a wrecked world, they still have this degree of optimism and that they can sow that optimism behind them. Ah, so um, yeah. And as, you know, as you go on, uh, beyond this, you find out that Olympus is kind of you know it, it's it's great, but it can be there's some manipulation going on. This film is basically just a post-apocalyptic rock'em sock'em, big robots shooting each other. There's a lot of those out there. This is better than most. Yeah, uh, the CGI is incredible. It's, it's startling. Really, really gorgeous to look at. Uh, there's only one thing that kept driving me mad that uh, 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 Dunan's hair uh, never stops moving. Yeah, and in this point Which where you is, like get some fucking gel. I know, I know that like New York is in ruins, but somewhere out there there must be some gel somewhere. That uh, like, and that's once again ever since. And this is like, the characters do look just like those Final Fantasy characters, which also did that, which drove me crazy during it, where their hair would always have that sort of like just slightly waving and stuff. It's like hair doesn't. It looks beautiful, sure, but hair doesn't work that way. It looks like an enemy's under the sea. Yeah, it does. That's exactly what that. it looks like, but, or seaweed yeah, or something. Yeah. yeah, I mean, frankly, if they turn around now and go, hang on, no, this is a good way to reboot the franchise starting from here because uh, one of the core things that the core differences they make from uh, the earlier stuff is that uh, Dunan and Brarios they're, they're good guys they're fairly explicitly good guys who do good things and they're basically at, you know before they get to Olympus they're you know doing the right thing and they get to Olympus really really quickly uh, in the manga whereas here you know you they work with gangsters. You get the feeling they've done some stuff that's a l- that's not out. They're, they're anti-heroes. Crooks. They're anti-heroes. Here. I think they're heroic, but they're in a bad situation. Yeah, they, Whereas, they do what they're having to do to survive, but nothing so egregious as to be like, you know, cold-blooded murder of the innocent or anything. Yeah, and I think I think you know I could actually uh, you know if they turn around and say no, we're we're jump-starting the franchise from here and build something that's visually consistent from here, I'd be on board. I would too, yeah, because I found this very involving. Like I said, absolutely gorgeous. When it comes to the point where you see when they go in the third act, where they go, okay, here's what all this shit was about, what these people were trying to do, uh, which is ultimately just like a giant death machine <laughs> that is so awesome and looks so cool. It's so <laughs> Japanese it's giant the most, death yeah, machine. It's like... Uh, uh, What's that, a uh, walking castle from Miyazaki? Yeah. It's like that, but with, like, guns all over it. With cannons everywhere. 
<laughs> I think also the, the one of the things this does really Ow. well is Briarios is just badass in this. Yeah. Well, of all the iterations of Briarios, well, I think this is this is the one I've it's liked. It's interesting because it starts where he can't do much. Yeah. And you're like, what is the deal? This is not how I remember him. And then it turns out that like, yeah, somebody corrupted his files and they fix it with an easy fix. I mean, like it's like like running out of where. <laughs> and uh, he's like, hey, look, now I can jump like 100 feet and like lift really heavy things and be badass. I'm like, yay, because I like him better that way. <laughs> he's also the first first robot on the planet to have bunny ears. He is indeed. Which was actually lampooned. Uh, 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 Shiro Masune, who, who created the series, like, later actually spoofed. Um, a lot of this stuff with Dominion Tank Police, which is his own, oh, which, right. is, which is his own uh, own uh, piss take. Uh, I did also one thing I did like about this. Uh, there was a problem with uh, the Appleseed manga. It would suddenly drop into completely unnecessary, irrelevant, and just seemingly because they could nude scenes. Mm. Uh, that's not here. No. So I think this is a little easier for... I mean, even Ghost, young... Ghost in the Shell, uh, that was a big thing with that as well. I remember like, why is this character naked right now? Well, uh, Appleseed rather famously has one issue, which is an exposition issue after years and years of like major fighting. Um and the two characters decide they're going to ha- have this huge exposition uh, issue just while they're wandering naked around a spa. <laughs> and it's like, why? And it's like, well, because they could. Well, even even with all that said, Dunan, who is, you know, a hot, young, tomboy chick who wears body armor all over, except for in a perfect circle on her chest, starting at the top of her breast and going to her navel. because She, she has a Power Girl boob window. Yeah, as, she has uh, a, to, a, a, a ex- use the extended phrase. Power Girl boob window. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> That's as much boobs as you get here, because this is actually all ages appropriate, I believe. I don't, th- I don't think there was that much bad language. In no, here, I, 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 you know, there's very little. Here. I mean, uh, you have to be okay with uh, uh, with the presence of Skrillex sure. on the soundtrack, um, uh, which is something in and of itself. Yeah, that's that's a whole different issue for other people. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, like I said, you know, they want to they want to continue with this. I'd actually be on board with them. There's a filmmaker commentary track uh, with the director and 11 making of featurettes that that go from script to screen. So really, this is actually well worth your time. I know it's me, the guy who never talks about anime, saying this is great, but it really was pretty great. I want to tell you about something that is was I felt kind of unfairly maligned at this year's South by Southwest, although most of y'all have no have, don't care because you weren't there. Yeah. But that is the movie by directed by act normally actor Diego Luna uh, about the life of American labor leader Cesar Chavez called Cesar Chavez. <laughs> well, they weren't stretching on that, were they? No, they no. really weren't. Uh, and this also is a chance for the great. Michael Pena, who has been in so many movies and had so many good roles as supporting characters, finally get a chance to be the leading character in something. And, you know, sadly, I don't think that he quite gave the performance I was hoping for. I just didn't feel like... And it's partially the problem with the script. It's like... It's very educational film about what actually happened. It's very moving in a sort of man's nobility sort of way, you know, and, and anger against injustice sort of way. But as de- developing him as a character and him as a human being, it's no Malcolm X. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we're not, I never, I still didn't feel like I actually knew that much about, uh, Cesar Chavez outside of what he stood for that was related to this. Now, the idea being here is that, uh, in, 
in California, there were all these uh, farm workers on grape farms and vinery farms uh, that were a lot of which were temporary workers from Mexico who were permitted to live and work in the United States uh, and and had to return to Mexico if they stopped working. Um, and this is like in the 60s. Uh, everything was I mean, they were like treated like shit and there was brutality against them and they were paid almost nothing. I mean, it was it was really hard and terrible like a lifetime lifestyle for these guys. Cesar Chavez, who already had gotten away from that whole world and was working with like organized groups when the movie starts in California, decides I'm going to, I, the only way to fight this is to go in, get my hands dirty and become one of them and try and organize them. So he takes his whole family with him, uh, to one of these labor areas, uh, including America, uh, America Ferrara playing his wife. And, uh, starts forming this labor union, you know, from the inside called the United Farm Workers. Now, of course, like none of these white people are real happy about this. <laughs> uh, kind of the main person in question played by John Malkovich, who is the patriarch of a, a, a wine, uh, vinery, uh, damn, I can't speak, a winery, vineyard? a vineyard, uh, who is like, you know, this is bullshit. I, I came here poor and I became who I was. I crawled up but pulled myself up my bootstraps, crawled up from the slime. These people can do the same thing. I don't owe them anything, which is still a sentiment we see reported regularly. Mm -hmm. But I think the point ultimately is like, no, what you have there is the abused child syndrome. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you thought, oh, well, I earned mine. Nobody else is going to take that shit away from me. And fuck all those other people. <laughs> or the guy who gets off the boat at the statue on Ellis Island, turns around to everybody else and goes, get out of my country. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, I mean, as this goes, it's really kind of a fascinating story about the beginning of unionization on here and how scummy some of the tactics were by these uh, uh, vineyard owners to stop this from happening and how like it was like about they were about to win when Bobby Kennedy got assassinated and Nixon won the election because of it. Oh. And then Nixon, of course, turned around and immediately you know, being very pro big business, turned around to all of them and said, look, we'll make it work. We'll make the military buy all your grapes and we'll set up like free transport of your grapes overseas and everything. And so you won't even have to worry about what these guys do. Fuck them and their strikes. And, you know, eventually uh, Cesar Chavez had a very famous hunger strike that went on for a long time uh, about his own people who were had started to respond with violence because he was a nonviolent, he believed in non-peaceful uh, protesting. And it's like I said, it's interesting in a historical perspective, but ultimately I just did not feel it in my heart the yeah. way you should. And this should be a vis this should be a visceral story. Yes, I mean I did very much enjoy because I like I mean I live in Austin, Texas. I should know about Cesar Chavez. We have a road, the major road named after him. As I was laughing, with my girlfriend watching that when they were doing the little end credit things, like and this person went on to do this, and this person went. I was like, and Cesar Chavez laid down in the middle of First Street and became a road. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Rosario Dawson has a nice little role in here as one of the friends who are helping him, as as does Wes Bentley. Poor Wes Bentley. That guy should have been huge. And yeah. It just didn't happen. Gail Garcia Bernal, who appears in anything Diego Luna's has anything to do with, is also here briefly in a cameo. Um, like I said, it's good. It's just not great. And that's the thing. This should have been great. Yeah. It really should have been. All, you get a little making up featurette with this, but I mean – I. I don't want to sound like an asshole, but they knew this was going to sell well at Walmarts and so are releasing it wide on Blu-ray. Yeah. I'm kind of surprised they did not make a good, a, at least somewhat of a theatrical push. 
Well, they, they did, but I, think, I don't think it, it got a lot. I think it basically did it. You know, got very limited booking. But then again, you know, at the moment, theatrical is such a mystery to all, to all and is. sundry. No one really has any idea what's going to work. I mean, Transformers Four is now like what the biggest money making thing that ever existed ever because people are idiots. <laughs> God, I hate just no. And then you know, studio you know, studios don't necessarily know that something's going to get going to hit. So you know, yeah. Uh, well. Like I said, I'm not saying this should have been a hit, but I'm saying there's definitely a market for this, yeah. for this film being made. And it is very well made for what it is. It just, it felt like it could have been so much more than ultimately what it was. So shame about that. But if you're interested in the subject at all, I still think it's worth a look. I admit I also kind of liked our next film, The Angriest Man in Brooklyn. And it's another one that I go, okay, well, this was never going to get a theatrical release, but despite its wonderful cast, Robin Williams, Mila Kunis, Peter Dinklage, who can do no wrong right now, and mm-hmm. Melissa Leo, who also can do no wrong right now. Um, now, admittedly, Melissa and Peter, who are the ones I'm most interested in seeing in this film, are very small roles in it, <laughs> but it's another one of the Robin Williams doing a drama type film with slight comedic aspects, and he's always better in a drama than he is in a comedy. For yeah. a guy who's a comedian, his comedies are atrocious most of the time. I mean, with the exception of like, uh, 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 uh Good Morning Vietnam and one or two others, most of them are unwatchably. But the thing is, even in, in Good Morning Vietnam, that is a, that is a straight, that is a straightforward drama that he's funny in. Yes, that's true. And I think he's realized that with, with things like, you know, uh, World's Greatest Dad. True. That he's like, you know, I can push the limits or one hour photo. Film I still love, not enough people have seen. Love that film. That he, you know, he can go out there and say, I can push a, a, a moderately conventional dark story into truly sinister, unpleasant, uncomfortable places. And people still like me personally enough, and they'll follow me down into that dark place. And I think he, he, he opens it up for a lot of directors to really go, you know what? I can be as mean and sordid as I like because people are there with Robin Williams. And the thing is about him, when he suffers on film, your heart just tears apart for him. When he's like, when he hits rock bottom, you're always like, oh, it just rips your heart apart to see him. He's really great at those type of roles. <laughs> uh, I'm like one of the people always going to defend the, the one where he, he goes to the afterlife and he's like trapped in paintings and stuff. You remember that one? Oh, in dreams. I yeah. love that. I like that movie a lot. I, 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 I will fight a man over, over that film because I, I, I thought a lot of people just came after it. And I'm like, why do you hate this film so much? It is, yeah. you know, it, it's a profoundly moving mixture of, of really great impressionistic uh, uh, visuals. It was one of the first films to really use CGI in a truly creative way. True. That wasn't just like, we can do things that we can't do with models. It's like, you can do things that you can't do, that you can't create, that you make an environment that responds in a way that you can't do otherwise. Agreed. And I think it really did, you know, it, it's a film that I think at some point will be reappraised. What dreams may come. What dreams may come. Uh, it, it will be reappraised. Uh, this one is a remake of a 1997 Israeli film, The 92 Minutes of Mr. Baum. And here that Robin Williams is the angriest man in Brooklyn, uh, who is just a huge jerk right off the bat. I mean, it starts off saying with pictures of him happy with his family and they're all, oh, and I used to love my life. And then it's like, but now, and he's all pissed off in traffic and he gets hit by a taxi and he throws into this, goes in this huge rage. Then he's in a hospital and Mila Kunis is like the, a doctor who's volunteering for his usual doctor. And she's, he's there for a regular checkup. Apparently he's been having headaches and stuff. And, uh, she looks at the scans is like, holy shit. Um, Hey, this guy's got a brain aneurysm, and I haven't given this to a specialist yet, but I can tell just by looking at these, 
this is not good. Yeah. Like this guy is like, it seems to me like as someone who I'm not a specialist, this guy doesn't have long. And, uh, Henry, you know, she's like, look, I can't really tell you. He's like, how long do I have? He's like, I'm not even saying you're going to die. I'm just saying I, we need to talk to a specialist. And he starts insulting her and being a huge asshole. And finally, she's like, okay, fine. You have uh, 90 minutes to live. Fuck you. Good luck. And he, like, wow, leaves in a huff. But then on his way to his office where he works with his brother, Peter, played by Peter Dinklage, he's like, wow, I... I starts to believe because you know what at first I was just angry like she's full shit but now I'm like I don't think she is I think I really do have 90 minutes maybe I do have 90 minutes to live and then convince himself I have 90 minutes to live and starts re yeah, trying to figure out everything that he went totally wrong with in his life and it all went ties back to like his son a few years ago one of his two sons died in an accident and he's just never been the same since. And he distanced himself from his wife and he distanced himself from his other son and everyone he loves in his life. Meanwhile, you know, he's running around like a madman trying to accomplish a bunch of shit, uh, you know, and fix things before this 90 minutes is up. And Mila Kunis, who realizes, fuck, my whole career is fucked. I just totally, I, you can't do that, is going all over town trying to find this guy <laughs> and tell him, no, I don't know. It wasn't actually 90 minutes. You know, stop being crazy. And, you know, it's actually an interesting, it's a very interesting Walker Williams performance. Mila Kunis gets to a lot to stretch a lot in this film as well. I don't mean literally stretch. That's, 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 yeah, no, that's, uh, what do you call it? That David, um, uh, Eric. Eric. Black Swan. Yes, Black Swan. Ah. I can't remember anything today. I don't know what's my problem. Uh, Peter Dinklage, once again, is funny when he's in it, but not given a lot as his brother. Melissa Leo plays his estranged wife who has one really nice part in this movie where she gets a, a great like going off on him speech but otherwise isn't given a lot to do and ultimately this is like it's a bittersweet but still kind of heartwarming film about like hey you could die at any point you know what maybe think about the people in your life that no matter who was wrong it's time to fix things with. yeah and it works more than it doesn't um i i did in fact like this guy there's a kind of a sad part in here with james earl jones who's looking ancient how old is James I, Old Jones He's got, got to be really old at this point, but he's plays a guy who works in a pawn shop who Robin Williams is trying to buy a video camera from. He's 83. Wow. And who has this horrible stutter. And, you know, Robin Williams is pressed for time. And he's like, whoa, 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 whoa. You see Robin Williams, like, head bobbing, like, come on, come on. And eventually, like, you know, uh, he keeps telling him different cameras, like this is the Fuji or the Fukunama. Uh, and then, like... Robin Williams parodies is at one point. Like, can you <laughs> hurry up? And he's like, fuck you. <laughs> That's a, a good laugh, but still like, wow, did James Earl Jones actually, is he actually hurting? Cause I'm worried about him. Yeah. Anyway, cute, but not essential film. Um, what are you going to do? Anyway, uh, we have moved on to the final part of the show that is known as giveaway. Yay! And we have two giveaways for you this week. The wow. first of which is a excellent South Korean spy thriller. Very pretty much, well, not exactly plot wise, but in definitely in terms of like what it feels like their version of one of the Bourne movies huh. called The Suspect. 
Um, this just came out in 2013, was a major hit in Korea, and they clearly spent a fuck ton of mo- money on this movie. <laughs> I mean, it's one of those movies... Metric or Imperial fuck ton? Yeah, no, no, the, the, what, which is more? Uh, both. Uh, how can that be? Hushqua. <laughs> okay, both on top of each other, so two fuck tons. Going at it. All right. Yep. Fighting in a pit. Darn. Are you ready? Are you ready? Well, let's get it on. Uh, Gong Yu, who has recently become kind of an action star in Vietnamese films, plays Ji Dong Chui. Chul, sorry. Uh, who was, as we see, was a best of the best special forces North Korea agent and spy. Like, one of the guys, like, they put people through this impossible to survive training course, and the few that make it out become the best of the best spies. And he has relatively recently, like, defected to South Korea because when uh, Kim Jong-il died, his son was like, I want to wipe the slate clean and start over. Basically, his government abandoned him, sent one of his own friends after his own family to kill his his wife and children. Uh, and he's like, well, fuck this guy and fuck this, this government. I'm going to South Korea, uh, where he's kind of more or less living secretly there, uh, working for a, uh, as a personal chauffeur and assistance with a business, a powerful business executive there called Trayman Park. But one night he's there and an assassin has, he comes across an assassin who's come in and already killed him, basically injected him with overdose of adrenaline and fights the guy and takes him out. And before Chairman Park dies, he hands a sunglass, these uh, glasses in a case to him and says, would well, take these and bury these? You know, okay, what the fuck does that mean? So it's the beginning of this big spy thriller and very born like as everybody is looking for this guy. Yeah. You know, like the the South Koreans are looking for him and the North Koreans are looking for him and a, a group of reporters are looking for them. And the thing is, he is like the biggest, baddest, most do not fuck with me because you're going to lose spy in the whole world. And and he's very convincing with it. I mean, like incredible hand to hand combat scenes. Some of the best driving action scenes I've seen in a while with lots of like like stuff that I've never seen anybody think about doing in a car chase scene. There's a sequence where you always see the scenes where there's the blockade of police cars. How are they going to get through? Well, there's a police car chasing right behind him. So he does a, a emergency brake fueled swerve. So he ends up right behind that police car and then uses him as a battering ram to get <laughs> through the blockade. It's like, that's awesome. How come I've what? never seen that Why before? Why wouldn't you do that? It's like, I'm not sure it's physically possible, but fuck it. It looked good. Yeah. I believed it. Uh, lots of cool stuff like that during the, the length of this. It's a pretty long movie at 137 minutes with a very smart film. And it's one of those, like, by the end, I'm like, wow, I kind of want to see a second film in, about this character because he is so cool. And I have a copy of this on Blu-ray to give away to you guys. Um, really, like I said, really recommend this. Fans of the Bourne fan- films, you're definitely going to like this one as well or any given spy film with lots of cool combat and, and car accidents and shit. Stuff blowing up real good. I think something like a hundred cop cars blow up on screen. Hey! I mean, more than like the Blues Brothers. It's wow. ridiculous. Uh, and that was the, the gold standard for uh, a couple right? of decades. I know, right? <laughs> I love you. I, <laughs> my Fiora, I no, love you. There, there was no I know. I almost said I know. Yeah, no, it's my Fiora, I love you. And then just that look. And we just <laughs> go, Ugh. <sighs> Uh, so I, what you're going to do here if you want to win uh, win this is make sure you're uh, fans of us on Twitter. Yes, you've got to join Twitter. I'm sorry. Uh, at one of us net. And what you want to do is message us with the hashtag of uh, uh, suspect giveaway. And then you're going to say, um, uh, what are they going to say, Richard? Ooh, 
Um, this is your job now. Yeah, my job. Too. Um, you think spies, you think James Bond, you think James Bond gadgets. Uh, if you, uh, What would be the coolest spy gadget? That is not already existing in a spy film. Yeah. Cool. All right, and we'll pick the winner from that, and we will send you a copy of The Suspect on Blu-ray, and you will enjoy the shit out of it, because God knows I did. But that's not all! Ooh. Our second giveaway! Mr. Ambassador with this Ferrero Rocher, you're spoiling them. Mr. Ambassador with the Mystery Science Theater 3000 Ooh. Volume XXX. Oh, sweet Mystery of Science Theater 3000, I have found you! I like that. There you go. Yes, this is the 30th mystery science theater box set not just from shout factory but they counted the ones that came out from rhino video before it wow so 30 mystery science theater box sets with four films on average in them a piece a few have one or two more but generally it's four films this one is indeed a four film set uh surprisingly there's no uh porno film in here oh it's i would i would have liked to have seen them take on like uh the 70s alice in wonderland have you ever seen that oh yes yeah which is a porn film but you know 90% of it is just people talking. Yeah. Uh, it would have been hysterical to see something like that, but I guess that's probably outside of the bounds of normal decency. Uh, even though it's oh, like Oh, conventional wisdom. In this one, uh, <laughs> we've got four, like, bad films that are made awesome by, once again, the, the fact that Mystery Science Theater has got the robots in front of them. Uh, the first one is the, I think all, all but one of them, I think, are Mike Nelson. I'm not entirely sure. I want to say that uh, the only one I did not get to watch was The Black Scorpion, and I feel like that was actually a Joel one, but I didn't get to watch it. But The Projected Man is a 1967 sci-fi film that's basically The Fly, if you will, like the original Fly, not the Jeff Goldblum one, where a guy invents a teleportation machine, and he tries to teleport himself, but then he comes out a monster, and then starts killing people, and including the girl that he loves. Because that happens. Because that that's happens. What, that's what happens. But it's very British, and very quatermass experiment, and very, like, the terrible makeup effect, and totally silly as hell with like so much just goddamn Britishism in this. Like you'll laugh. You should watch this one because there's a lot of fun at the expense of like very dry British drawing room type films. Yeah. The, of like hello, are you a monster? Proper Britishisms. I'll the, make tea. The, ah! the r- robots have no end of fun at their expense, <laughs> and I had a great time with it. Uh, next, like I said, the Black Scorpion. I did not get to see this one. It was a 1957 Mexican American horror film that was put out by Warner Brothers with a Willis O'Brien stop motion special effects. But that, of course, probably does not make this good uh well considering that willis o'brien would have been quite advanced in age when this true true was made i have seen it it's kind of hilarious without the commentary track yeah uh in that way that you know bad 50s uh mexican uh horror films were this is this is the true rackham and stackham era of mexican monster movies uh not spectacular but you know the mst3k treatment that's that's a lot that's what they're there for uh the the bat people is the official name of the film that is listed here as it lives by night but originally titled the bat people which makes a lot more sense than it lives by night because none of the characters here are strictly speaking restricted to being out at night well i mean the, it lives by night but also by day would have just been a very unwieldy title true and it's also called it's alive which i can see why they don't call it that anymore because there's a much better film called it's alive that came out years <laughs> later uh which isn't to say that's great either but 
much better. It's much better than this. It's still accurate. The idea being here is this guy and his wife, they go spelunking in Carlsbad Cabin, which I've been in and it's pretty awesome and you should go in if you've never been to. Uh, And then the the guy in question, who's a doctor, he specializes in bats and he's bitten by a fruit bat. And then for no reason at all, he starts turning into a vampire bat. Because, because, you know, fruit bats... Vampire bats, same thing. Same thing. Same thing. This, I really feel like... What was a fruit bat doing in Carlsbad Cabins? I don't know. If the ASPCA had been around, they would have protested this film because there's all these close-ups of a bat that's freaking the fuck out because clearly someone is holding and stretching its wings out on either side and of the camera. And it's very sad. It's very sad. And, and particularly not, if it's a fruit bat because they're adorable. And they don't hurt anything. No. They eat like bugs and shit. It's like my, one of my favorite things is that... Well, actually, the fruit. Uh, that's the name. That's yeah. why they're not called bug bug bats. Yeah. Although bug bats would be cool. Uh, I, there is actually a, a variety of giant fruit-eating piranha. That really? basically Yeah, they live in the Amazon and they wait for uh, fruit to fall off the tree and then they wait for it to rot um, because otherwise it, like, it's too tough for them to bite through. It as... And they just come up and go, om, om, and they just gum at it. And then the size of manhole covers and, and for a fish, they're the cutest thing you've ever seen. <laughs> That's bizarre. <laughs> it's better hey, than... the more you know. Uh, we, you just, uh, we just dropped some knowledge look, on y'all. Uh, Please don't think that makes it safe to swim in the Amazon. It is not. There's a fish that crawls up your urethra. The dreaded Kandiru! No, thank you. No. Uh, anyway, so he, gets, he starts turning into a vampire bat in a really corny and laughable way. And, uh, yeah, and he goes on a killing spree, as you do. <laughs> but please note, this is a late American International Pictures uh, movie before Roger Corman came in and went, Oh, no, gonna fix this shit. This is just this is just bad in in the perfect way. Uh, the highlight of this set is Outlaw of Gore, also known as Gore Two or Outlaw, just Outlaw, as it was released in this version. And this is based on the Gore novel series by author John Norman, who has made the date I think thirty five books in this series. He's still alive and still publishing these much maligned fantasy series for being incredibly misogynist and like just filled with sadomasochism and. And not in a nice Betty Page sort of way. <laughs> yeah, the, the, this is not empowering to women, uh, BDSM. In this is just, bit. oh, no, this is an unpleasant human being. And like I said, in this sequel, we see uh, Urbano Barberini, who plays uh, uh, Tarl Kalb- Kalbin. Please stop before you get too low in the, in the, in the, the, the actor credits here, because otherwise it's going to make me sad. I'm sorry, I'm going to have to keep going. Anyway, no. so he and his little wormy friend uh, end up transported back to the world of Gore, no. where he was in, presumably, in the first film, which we see a pre- little previously on Gore segment in this. And uh, he has to fight another new evil villain, played here by Jack Palance. No! No, that never happened. It happened, I'm it telling didn't. you. I watched it. It uh, happened. I hate you. Believe it. Ugh. Or not. Ugh. <laughs> uh, and this is one of the funniest Mystery Science Theater episodes I've actually seen in a while. They have so much fun to the fact that everybody keeps saying Cabot so many times. And so, Cabot, Cabot, Cabot. There's a whole scene where they say it so many times. You start, it starts sounding like it's not real. You know when you say a word so many times, it starts to become absurd. Potato. Yeah, you say it like 30 times, then you're like, wait, that can't possibly mean what it means, right? Because that's, that's ridiculous. Like, Cabot starts sounding like that almost immediately, even though, you know, it's not just the name of this guy. It just starts driving you crazy. You're like, ah, stop fucking saying Cabot! It's killing me! Um, and it's, you know, I mean, another silly sword and sorcery type affair where he's like the predicted hero who save everyone's slaves from bondage and gets to have sex with various different women and every woman wants him even the villainous uh princess of the castle and yada 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 
It's a terrible fucking movie. Has there ever been a successful sword and sorcery movie? Like, truly, like, actually successful sword and sorcery movie? Yeah, The Beastmaster. Oh, yeah, I'll go for that. But they're they're kind of goofy. Uh, Lord of the Rings. Yeah, that's that's high fantasy. That's not sword and sorcery. Okay, fair enough. Um... Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I, but I this, the sword this is, and the sorcerer was awesome. Oh, the sword and sorcerer was awesome. <laughs> like, you know, the, that bit where he, he has the, the, the triple sword. Oh, the triple sword. Fire bits of it. Badass. Yeah. Is, you do not get anything that good here. No. You have Jack Palance in a horrible hat. Um, no, the worst hat ever. Uh, a, a, a lot of, a, basically a lot of, of Horius as written by people who have never seen a woman. This really is like, this whole, there's a whole parallel internet of people who just go, no, no, the gore book's the perfect guide to how to interact with females. No, they're not. And there's a, like an albino dwarf who everyone, they keep making Edgar Wright jokes about running around as his little assistant. Aww. And Yeah, I know. It's like, one point my favorite is like, oh my God, I just figured out who that dwarf is. He's a photo negative of Hervé Villages. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and the best part about this whole thing, Mystery Science Theater wise, is that during the middle of this episode, they perform a vaudeville song of the booby song, where <laughs> they just sing about all the boobies in this movie and it's so fucking funny uh great great film not great film great mockery of a film in a great set and we are giving away this copy got one copy of this on dvd unfortunately they've never put these out on blu-ray but still beggars can't be choosers it's still mystery science theater box set and uh once again the rules apply the same make sure you're, you're on twitter uh t- tweet us at, at one of us net with hashtag mst3k giveaway and here's what you have to do Richard? Um, okay, we've just gone past, uh, the, uh, uh the, fir- the first year of, uh, of, um, digital, uh, digital noise and entirety of one of us done that. Um, so, name a, the film that has been released cinematically in the last year that you would like to have you know, like to see get the MST3K treatment. Oh, in the last year? Yeah, the last year. Only the last year, solely the last year, cinematic release should have got the MST3K treatment. Fair enough. Uh, and like I said, tweet us that, and we will pick out a winner and send you the Mystery Science Theater box set. Aren't you lucky? Anyway, that's it for this week's uh, episode of Digital Noise. Thank you so much again, Richard, for joining me. Oh, my pleasure. And we will be back again next week with more craziness, more giveaways, more fun titles to talk about. In the meantime, if you are in San Diego, make sure to join us. Uh, well, me anyway, because Richard is has no life. Boo! <laughs> and, and Brian at uh, Hard Rock Cafe on Saturday night from 6 to 8 p.m. Uh, we will be a meet and greet and a pub crawl afterwards. Once again, as we say every week, no release is too big, no release is too small. From 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 Chimera to Caterpillar, we reviewed them all. That will be it. That's close enough. Mm.